0: This is My Rain Gauge is Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Ethan, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, we talk to The Break's fearless leader, Graham Anderson, about the difference between weather forecasts, seasonal forecasts, and climate change models. There can be a lot of mystery behind models and forecasts, so we're going to get that demystified today. Gemma's going to take it from here.
1: Weather, seasonal forecasts and climate change are all very important to the current and future prosperity of agriculture in Australia. And while the three different forecasts and models are similar, there are clear differences in what they are, how they are calculated and what they can be used for. This is a topic close to Graham's heart and something he has been presenting on at workshops, field days and conferences for many years.
2: Yeah, well, I guess for agriculture, because, you know, agriculture and farmers are running their business out in the weather, understanding weather and forecasts and um, seasonal predictions and, and climate change are all really important. But I guess one of the things when we talk to a lot of farmers, there's no shortage of confusion around trying to understand the different weather forecasts, the models, which ones do you trust? And a common question we often get is, listen, if they're having trouble forecasting the weather beyond the next six or seven days, then how the heck can they try and pretend they can predict the weather in 30 or 50 years' time with climate change? So, so I guess we've got um, a bit of a story to try and talk through the different components of what underpins, you know, weather forecasts, what, what they can and can't do. Then talking about the seasonal forecast, which is sort of looking past the weather forecast into sort of week two and three and into the next sort of three months. And then beyond three months, um, what climate models can and can't do for looking at what's in store for the decades ahead.
0: The underlining thing for each is that they all rely on a model.
2: It's interesting, talking about models and forecasts, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about weather forecasts or seasonal outlooks or climate change, they're all based on models. And I know um, there's always a lot of discussion and jokes about how much do you trust models, but a key bit is knowing when to trust them and when not to. And it's interesting, all farmers have, are used to using models, and I think of the model, if you ask farmers about a particular paddock, uh, so the front paddock, and saying what sort of yield might you be expecting this year, their head will automatically bring up a model and they'll say, Oh, I think we're on track for about, you know, a four ton per hectare crop. And you'll go, Gee, how do you, what are you basing that on? And their model is say, Well, it's made up of the historical. I know what we've grown there in the past. I know how much rain we've had. I know that we've got wheat in there this year. And I know that everything's on track. And, you know, about four ton is what we're on track for. So, There's a lot of sort of data that a farmer might call upon to be confident about. Yep, we're on track for four tonnes per hectare. But then there's this whole bit about, well, what don't you know? And that's about the farmer says, well, I don't quite know about what the finishing rainfall is going to be. I don't know if we might get a frost or I don't know if the neighbour's sheep might get in. So those things aren't in the model. I'm just saying that how things are looking at the minute, we should get four tonnes per hectare
0: how the output of the model is communicated and what the model is able to tell us is what makes them different.
2: One of the things when talking about forecasts of any sort is whether they're deterministic or probabilistic. But really, forecasting the future is a bit of a mugs game. I mean, lots of people pretend to do it, but no one really knows exactly how the future will play out. And that's not just the story with weather and seasonal forecasts, but you know, when you talk about the markets or the economy or you know, what will trade prices or product prices be in the next three, six months, lots of people are sort of offering all sorts of commentary, but really no one knows for sure what will happen in future. But we're also not flying blind either, and that's where modelling, understanding what's happened in the past, and having all of these sort of forecast tools come into play.
1: You may have heard Graham using the strange terms of deterministic and probabilistic. A deterministic forecast is one where the model is either run once, and the answer is X, or the model is run multiple times, and the average of those models is the answer. This communication is different to a probabilistic forecast where the model is run multiple times and the outcomes are grouped and given a probability based on the number of times that group occurred.
2: So the deterministic bit is just really about just saying this is what we think is going to happen with the weather. From a forecasting point of view, when you're looking at the weather for the next few days, there's a higher confidence. So what they use is pretty complicated computer models nowadays, which do an amazing job. And because the computer power is getting so much bigger and our forecasts are so much more data being collected in terms of observations of weather and satellite imagery showing how weather phenomena is unfolding, all of that has led to an improvement in our weather forecast. So if you went back to the 80s, you know, a three-day forecast was considered probably as far as you'd trust it. And here we are sort of 40 years later, uh, you know, we've got six, seven day forecasts, which um, on the whole are are pretty good. But one of the things to understand is how do these models work and when can we trust them and when can't we, because they don't always get it right. So one of the things about deterministic models is often what they're referred to. It's really just talking about that weather in the next um, three to seven days. And one of the key bits is this, just saying, well, it's, deterministic because they're saying, you know, we're pretty sure – we know what's going to happen. But I guess it gets a bit more complicated because uh, when we look at different forecasts for the weather, there might be a bunch of models that are saying, yes, it's going to be fine tomorrow and the top of X degrees. But there is some rain brewing on the third day, perhaps. And it's really interesting now, uh, and especially with farmers who have got lots of different apps on their phones or websites they can look at, day one is a lot more accurate than um, the forecast for day seven. But the key bit, to really be careful of with weather forecasts is that for some bigger weather events the models can diverge so there can be a bigger range of things that might happen. And that uncertainty is really important. And also when you have thunderstormy weather, the forecast might predict that, okay, in three days' time, there's going to be, you know, predicted thunderstormy weather, but they have no idea of knowing exactly where those thunderstorm cells are going to appear. So that might only happen an hour or two beforehand. And often in a thunderstorm, that can make the difference between whether you miss it completely versus... Um, You know, someone a couple of farms away might get 70 or 80 millimetres of rainfall. So if there's things like thunderstorming in the forecast, then that's a key question to say that, well, the the forecasters really don't know anything could happen. There's actually a number of forecast providers and weather models out there. And often I see this, and sometimes the Bureau do a good job of this, the Bureau of Meteorology, there might be an extreme weather event brewing and they might put up actually three separate forecast models showing how for this big weather event, there's actually a lot of rain coming. But depending on if you look at the Australian Access weather forecast model, it will says the rain's going to fall out here and how much it is. But then the United States has a GFS forecast model, and it might actually be suggesting the format of that um, weather event might be in a slightly different position. And there's also the common uh, European model, which is um, the ECMWF model, often used in seven-day forecasts. And... Uh, Often they'll put a map up of those three just showing how, yes, there's a big weather event brewing, but each of these forecasts actually has a different amount of rain. So if you're a farmer, it might mean the difference between whether you might get 5 or 10 mil or whether you might get 100 mil. So each of these models is trying to do its best to work out where this weather event's going to unfold, but none of them actually know exactly what will happen. And so that's where it's really important to know whose weather forecast are you looking at. And sometimes knowing the uncertainty in a weather forecast is, is just as important as knowing the amount of rain that might be being predicted. If you're on your phone looking at one model and it's saying 80 mil and then your is looking at a phone app and it's from a completely different model and it's saying 5 mil, then you know what, what tends to happen is they all blame the Bureau of Meteorology if the rain we get doesn't match what's on the forecast. But for probably half the farmers I speak to and then we look at, well, what model are you using for your forecast? Um, at least half of them aren't coming from the Bureau of Meteorology. They're models that are coming from somewhere else. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just important to know whose forecast are you looking at, which is a pretty key bit. And also some of these tools that just compare the range of models can be pretty useful because it's telling you about the, the actual wider level of confidence about what rainfall might be in store.
1: Forecasting is a serious scientific and mathematic exercise. So it is very important to be following credible sources.
2: There's a lot of people putting illegitimate stuff out there. Like, you know, no one can predict the future. That's the key bit. (laughs) It's amazing what bloody weather forecasts can do, but also they're not infallible, you know. And you see too, like, there's a lot of stuff happening where people have got their weather station and they can get some program that will give them a 30-day forecast based on their weather station. And they think that this is just a huge breakthrough. And you go, no, it's bullshit. It's just some model and they've got no idea what's going to happen after seven days, but people are taking this false face, so it's important to try and get it out about, listen guys, you, anyone telling you they've got you a 20-day a forecast, it's bullshit for weather.
1: Probabilistic forecasts can trip many people up, but it is the only credible way to predict out past a weather forecast.
2: Yeah, well, see, weather forecasts pretty good out to seven days, and as you head out, things get a lot less certain and that's where we move into the multi-week and seasonal forecasts and we often talk a lot more about probabilistic forecasts because basically we're moving out into the, the outer reaches of you know the confidence levels of the, the models and, and rather than being able to say listen in, in 30 days we know it'll be exactly this temperature and there'll be rain at 3pm in the afternoon the models actually can't do that and I do know there are some websites that offer or pretend they can do that but they're just really pulling people's leg once we go past that sort of seven, eight, nine days of the weather forecast, what happens on any one day is less known. We're really just looking at longer-term climatology. So when they're talking about anything beyond the, the weather forecast and out into week two, three, and the next three months, they run the models, but they don't just run them once, they might run them 100 times. And depending on how that ocean pattern set up and if it's sending more moisture or more cloud or less, basically the models just calculate, well, how much rainfall fell at the different parts across Australia. And sometimes there's a complete spread of those forecasts. So you might see that of the 100 runs, um, 50% of the models were, were wetter than average and 50% of the model runs were drier than average. And that's where you're seeing the full spectrum of things are on offer and often that's what they might call a, a neutral forecast where they're saying there's no strong driver there that's really skewing the forecast one way or another. So pretty well um, you've got anything to expect. It could be from decile 1 all the way through to decile 10, which is the wettest 10%. It's sort of a real lottery. But if you introduced into that that oh no there's some a big La Nina event it's really warm sea surface temperatures to Australia's north there's lots of cloud or there's a negative Indian Ocean Dipole which again sends lots of extra moisture our way if you run the climate models over that for the next three months it wouldn't be surprising to see eighty percent of the model runs say oh no you're going to be wetter than average because you know we've got this extra moisture feed feeding in. A big challenge, as with all forecasting, is understanding the language and what's meant by the person saying the term versus how we hear it. And often when someone sees, um, especially with some of the seasonal forecasts where they might say there's a 50% probability of more than average rainfall, and that's actually the same as a 50% chance of less than average rainfall. And people think, oh, well, we should expect average. But often um, that can actually mean the full range of, you know, rainfall outcomes are in there from very dry to wet. It's just that half of the model runs were wetter and half the model runs were drier. So you shouldn't really bank on average in that situation. There's some good projects underway. I know the Forewarn Forearm Project, the industry, Australian sort of industry, the Managing Climate Variability Program and the Bureau of Meteorology are working on to really improve how they talk about those forecasts and different things are coming like, say, farmers are more worried about whether it's going to be really dry like in the decile one or two uh, which is the driest 20% of years the risk of that so they're, they're looking at how do you do the forecast of trying to show have the odds changed for being in that dry zone is it normal or have we doubled our chance of being in decile one Two? so hopefully some of the language behind these forecasts is going to get a bit better a lot more meaningful because um, there's a big risk if people misinterpret a forecast and make a decision from it then it could do harm. The one that many people
0: get stuck on is climate change modelling. People
2: say, if you can't forecast past seven days, then how can you tell me that the year 2050 is going to be warmer? And what's really interesting is there are parts of climate change that we're actually more confident about than we are about the weather at a particular site in 10 days' time. So, part of it is just how understanding weather and the climate works. But one of the key bits with, you know, we know we've got lots of variability, you know, in our last few hundred years of rainfall history and even longer term rainfall records, we've got all of that. But part of it, the issue of climate change is really back to do with. Uh, the greenhouse gas story. In most places, we've seen over the last, especially the last 50 and 100 years, increasing temperatures. um, 90% of that heat's gone into the oceans, and we're at the early phases of that. So the whole story of climate change is well, if we keep adding more emissions, then we're really going to start to um, increase the amount of heat. But it also then starts to have questions into, well, how does that affect our longer term variability? We know what good old-fashioned variability and what our rainfall records have done in the past, but how might that change you know, in a world that's a lot warmer? So that's where a lot of the climate change modelling comes in to try and look at what happens if that and certainly when um, you look at the last 50 years and changes in temperatures and you can only replicate the increases in temperatures when you include increasing the greenhouse gases in the climate models. So there's been a lot of work done on that and I guess that's why there's all this discussion and effort now going into making sure we choose a low emissions future. The bit about the climate change stuff is if you warm up the whole planet Basically, the tropics is the hottest part of the planet, the tropics along the equator. So if you warm everything up, the tropics expands either side of the equator and it sort of nudges weather patterns closer towards the poles. So from southern Australia's point of view, if you warm up the world, the westerlies that bring all of our sort of southwesterly and cold frontal weather along southern Australia, that all just gets nudged 500 kilometres to the south for every certain amount of warming that's just the physics of how the planet and the weather systems work so a lot of the climate change models they're confident that we're going to have increased heat we're confident that it shifts weather patterns polewards we're confident that it actually when you warm up the atmosphere it means it rains heavier so it increases rainfall intensity but there's also lots of things that the climate change models aren't sure about and that's why there's a range of models in terms of some places predict a much much greater amount of drying than others some predict greater heat extremes and others and some really don't tell us a lot about what will happen to core modes of variability such as the El Nino southern oscillation and how the Indian Ocean pattern might change. In a world of eight billion people, when you add climate change and the physics and how that affects good old-fashioned variability, it just does add a lot of extra pressure on our systems in terms of what sort of intensity of rainfall where we've got to be able to manage for peak flows, you know, how we manage for bigger droughts, how do we manage for um, increasingly bigger heat waves and those sort of things. So that's part of it. We're always going to have seasonal variability in there, but in a warmer world, the dynamics of some of this changes quite a bit. I guess part of it, question though is that while the climate change and the, the modelling and the science is confident around some areas of it, there's a lot of uncertainty there, especially about, you know, there could be some bigger surprises in there that we haven't really discovered yet. So from a practical point of view in farming, we've just got to be prepared to um, make sure we're good at reading weather forecasts, make sure we understand what's in seasonal forecasts, and then taking what lessons we can out of recent trends and understanding what might be coming with climate change projections, and then improving that in how we set up our farm businesses, so, so we can see a lot of great stuff that farmers are doing to um, basically get better set up to handle that variability.
0: While all of this sounds very big picture and future focused, Graham explains that farmers are doing a great job setting up their businesses to deal with variability in the future.
2: Agriculture's done a great job growing a lot of food and fibre amidst some pretty tricky seasons in the last sort of 20 years. When everything goes right, we can grow more food and fibre than ever. but. Within 12 months we can be having an absolute, you know, horrible run of seasons or weather events. So part of it's just trying to set up a system for how do we cope with that greater variability. And I guess um one of the key bits about this is that all of these forecasts, whether it's for weather or the seasonal outlooks or the climate projections, they're just sort of it's important to understand enough about which bits are we confident in, which bits aren't we. And then the key bit is that. It's in the role of farmers and and us as humans of making decisions today that leave us better off in future. So whether that's doing something today because we're saying, you know what, we might need bigger uh, fodder storage facilities or better better water storage because of um, climate change, they're the things that we've got under our control. And we see lots of great stuff that farmers are doing. I know, um, you know, talking to farmers when it comes to forecasts and even seasonal forecasts, they say, you know, we never rely solely on just the forecast. We know the forecast is something we take a look at, but if we're trying to work out whether we um, offload some livestock, we're looking at things like um, how are our current carrying numbers, how much soil moisture have we got in the ground, how much extra fodder have we got, what's the current growth rate of pastures, and all of those things are sort of, knowable things that can be known so you should be looking at those things as the majority of the decision and then just saying well so what's the forecast saying is it is it helping or is it hindering so that's the important bit is that these forecasts you know they have a role but they're really only part of a a wider decision of where you're trying to use good active measurables to, to base it on. Farmers do a great job managing all of that. And when we look at what the secrets are for the farm businesses that are handling modern day variability really well, you know, we see there's lots of great innovation and and new research and genetics and things that are applied on farms. So keeping the flow of innovation coming is really important. We see lots of on-farm infrastructure that's been added that makes farms better set up to cope with those sort of varying seasons. That's been really important. And not just on-farm but also regional infrastructure like pipeline network networks and transport and communications infrastructure. One of the things is really important is being profitable, so making sure our markets are open and good buy security is really important because what we've seen is if the product, what you're growing, if you're getting paid for it, that gives you enough money to be able to make the changes on farm to be better set up for variability. It's very hard coping with increased variability if your core market fundamentals are are pretty poor. So still got to be in the main game of being profitable. The other key bit is farm planning. We see great work done on trying to make sure there's good land management because most of the sort of damage is done when we're dealing with really wet or really dry periods. That's when overgrazing and soil damage and all that stuff can happen. Business management, we're seeing farms making great progress on improving how they manage that financial variability. So how do you make the most of the good years and then have some of that up your sleeve for when things are tough? That business stuff is getting more and more important. Farms that are really going places, they're just really good at surrounding themselves with the right people and networks. So they're getting lots of good information, lots of discussions, they're involved with local farm groups. All of that stuff really helps you be well set up, well informed to um, take advantage of opportunities and support one another as as we work our way through all of this.
1: But as always, Graham cautions where you get advice from, making sure it is scientifically based and has a good grounding with current information on hand.
2: Often the newspaper's full of all these experts. Same with shares and all that stuff. They're all experts about explaining what happened last week. And the difference is when you're more confident is when you understand more of the fundamentals and you're getting access to some trusted advice to say, okay, okay this is why I think the market's going to go up because here's some good fundamentals and reasons why. And I can start to see that trend there, like I understand that, or I think the price of X is going to go up because look, there's a big shortfall here and so inventories are down. And so I can see that that's holding up good. So when you've got more of that data and understanding behind it from a trusted source, then, you, then you've then you actually got a bit more to go. You yeah, know, I think I do trust this forecast. My prices are going to go up. But other times people are offering it. And if you can't see any reasoning why, they're just making it up those drivers um when they're really active we know when the el nino drier phase is on or the id positive phase or when they both team up like the big droughts of 06 and 82 and farmers remember them and if they're sort of getting picked up in the forecast model then there's times when you've got a stronger confidence in that outlook same as the 2016 indian ocean dipole like when it was wetter uh, and all the models are onto it and you can see it happening, then you've got a much stronger confidence in the outlook. But um what frustrates people is some years there's nothing to go on. And that's part of the art, the dark art of when to trust them a bit more is saying, when is this forecast telling me something that I need to take more notice of? And when do I just ignore it and plan for anything?
1: We thank Graham for delving deeper into the dark art for us and giving us some tips and tricks to understand when to and not to be looking at a forecast, be that a weather Seasonal or climate
2: forecast. Oh, and what on earth is an IOD? Could someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break.
0: We hope this episode gives you some ideas on how you can mitigate some of the variability in your work and help to show what forecasts can do and what they can't do. We've included some helpful information sources in the show notes. And as always, you can get in touch with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. See you next time.
2: Three, and 3.4. Well, I've never heard of these terms before. About SOI and And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date. Get the break. Oh, keep your eyes out for so Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? Will westerly wind bursts blow away all our hopes of that rainy day? And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us now, because we have to know about it. SORs and SSTs.
1: Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.